We are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. We'll actually dip into chapter 2 and look at the first 10 verses that are found there as well. As far back as Eve, whom the Bible calls the mother of all living, mothers and motherhood have held a place of honor in most civilized cultures. Throughout the centuries, I suppose no religion in the world has held women and mothers in higher esteem than has Christianity. In the very center of the Ten Commandments, God ordained that we are to honor our fathers and our mothers. So it's completely appropriate that we would honor our mothers today, but not just today, every day. For some of us, our mothers have passed on. They're no longer with us, but that does not relieve us of our accountability to honor our mothers, to respect their memory. Many of us first learned about the Lord when we were at our mother's knee. Paul reminded Timothy of the rich spiritual heritage that was his when he talked about the careful instruction that he had received from both his mother and his grandmother, and how many of us can relate to that. It was our moms who first told us about the Lord Jesus. In fact, the scriptures provide for us many examples of motherhood. We, we think of people like Sarah and Ruth and Elizabeth and even Jesus' mother, Mary. They spring immediately to mind. And there are others. But I want to look this morning at one such godly mother with you. And her story is found in the opening chapter of 1 Samuel. So I trust you have found your way there. If you're not familiar with this book, then you need to know that the time that uh, this story takes place was during that dark period of the judges in Israel's history. The nation was without a king. And it was ruled by a series of judges. This period is summarized in the closing words of the book of Judges, which says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, it was a, a day of chaos. It was, a, it was a time of confusion. It was a time of religious ambiguity. And in spite of the repeated failures in spiritual adultery, on the part of his people, even through this dark time, God is still weaving the tapestry of his plan in which he's going to bring redemption to his people. And we don't have time to look there this morning, but in the book that immediately precedes 1 Samuel, the story of Ruth, we have a beautiful picture of that, how God is working out his plan even during the darkest of days. So when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning, there's a, there's a foreboding cloud that overshadows these first eight verses that we're about to read. So I'd like you to look there with me and just allow me to read for us. The book begins with these words. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. 
Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept, would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I want you to first of all notice in these first eight verses Hannah's sorrow. The book opens by introducing us to a man by the name of El Canaan. We're told that he was married to two women. Now that should alert us right away that there is an unhealthy family relationship taking place here. His wives' names were Hannah and Panina. Hannah is probably mentioned first because in all likelihood she was his first wife. And we're told here that Hannah was unable to bear children. She's barren. Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Of interest to us, the name Hannah means grace. And it's appropriate, is it not, that as we see in this story, God is going to show much grace and much favor to this woman. Now, polygamy is never condemned explicitly in Scripture. But whenever we see it occurring, there are always problems. We can imagine that. The inability that Hannah had to not be able to bear children was the ultimate tragedy that faced a married woman in that time because the husband's hopes of of perpetuating the family name depended upon his wife's ability to bear children. She was barren. And because that was so, Elkanah took a second wife, a woman by the name of Panina, and she became quite the prolific childbearer. Hannah's story is not without precedent in Scripture. There are other accounts of women who are unable to bear children, women whom God subsequently blessed with the ability to conceive and give birth. As similar cases uh, in Scripture tell us, we soon discover that Hannah and Penina were rivals. They were constantly it seems, trying to get the affection and attention of Elkanah. And this rivalry was only perpetuated when we learn from verse 5 that Elkanah went out of his way to show favoritism to Hannah, the woman who was not able to bear children. And the text says that he loved her, and then please notice the phrase, even though the Lord had closed her womb. Panina's reaction was to relentlessly taunt Hannah and her inability to bear a child to Elkanah. Verse 6 says that she used to provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her. And notice again the phrase, because the Lord 
closed her womb. Now, this provocation was more than just mere sarcasm. The Hebrew word carries the idea of persistent, loud, and boisterous mockery. You can only imagine that as Panina bore child after child and Hannah remained barren and Panina would taunt her what this must have been like. Twice we're told that the Lord closed her womb, leaving little doubt that Hannah's barrenness had been sovereignly decreed by God. Now, whether or not Hannah understood this did little to relieve the grief that she felt at being unable to conceive. Her rival's provocations only intensified the pain that she felt. So deep was Hannah's sorrow that we're told here that she perpetually wept and often refused to eat. Regarding God's sovereign and often incomprehensible ways, John Piper has written these words. When providence yields conception and birth and life, it is sweet. When providence yields infertility and miscarriage and stillbirth, it is bitter. And those words may strike some of you this morning with far more authenticity than the rest of us could understand. Perhaps you've been able to relate to Hannah's situation in ways that others cannot. I want to assure you of something, and that is that God knows your pain and that God understands and he has not left you comfortless. We can be certain that Hannah felt that way. And nevertheless, she held tightly to the God in whom she had come to trust. In his wife's darkest moments, Elkanah sought to comfort Hannah and to reassure her of his love. Look at, look at what he says here. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, I have no doubt that Elkanah's motives were well-intentioned, and yet they fell far short of the mark. Men can be pretty dense at times. It seems like we, we just don't get it when we try to probe and understand our wives' feelings. The truth of the matter was, Hannah needed much greater comfort than Elkanah was able to give. She knew that. And we see something of the strength of this woman and her character being brought out in the section that follows. Look with me at verses 9 through 18, and we find here Hannah's supplication. We've, we've seen her sorrow. Now she's about to pour out her heart to God. No words of, of comfort were able to console this dear woman. She realized that there was only one who truly understood her anguish and to whom she could turn when her heart ached so badly. So look at verse 9. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. They're on a family pilgrimage to Shiloh. They're there to worship and and to sacrifice to the Lord. And Hannah arises from a meal time, and, and she finds her way to the tabernacle. She's gone there to pray, and the text says that she was deeply distressed. She was weeping bitterly. There at the tabernacle that day was the priest, a man by the name of Eli. And if you read Eli's story throughout these early chapters of 1 Samuel, you come to realize he was not a very spiritually astute man. And yet he was serving as priest. And as he watched Hannah in silent prayer, he thought her to be a drunken woman. And so he rebuked her. But not even Eli's lack of perception was able to deter Hannah's approach to God. You'll notice that she begins her prayer by calling God, addressing him as Lord of hosts. She pled with this God to remove her bitterness and her barrenness, vowing to dedicate her God-given child to the Lord all the days of his life. In other words, if God would answer her prayer and open her womb, she would give the child that the Lord would give her back to the Lord. It was an act of dedication. And not just for a season as a Nazarite vow, which is described here, would indicate. Because those often were for just a season. But she says she's willing to give into the hands of this generous giver the child that he would give to her all the days of his life. Now, this wasn't a desperate attempt on the part of Hannah to twist God's arm into granting her request, but it was rather a recognition that God alone is the possessor and grantor of life and that he dispenses it at his good pleasure and for his good purposes. She believed that bearing a son would provide her a means of honoring and pleasing God. By way of application, Hannah's vow should be that of every parent. Every parent, every mother who bears a child, every parent who trusts God should be willing to give that child back to the Lord. Because the psalmist declares in Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. The point is this. Every conception and every birth is providentially ordained by a sovereign God. It's always a sign of his favor. There are no mistakes when it comes to conception. And we should never view the conception of a child, the birth of a child, as anything less than that which we give thankful praise for and stand in reverential awe. From the beginning of history, the scripture portrays human offspring as a gift from God. 
not merely in some general way, you know, like God is the one who gives birth, but individually, every one of us. As the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, and for that matter, all of Scripture testifies, God's involvement in the birth process is personal. It's hands-on. After all, he upholds the universe by the world of his power, Hebrews 1.3. In him, all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. And if we learn nothing else from this glorious truth, it should be to recognize that every conception is ordained by God and every birth is a gift from God. But Eli seemed to miss it. Eli seemed to be oblivious to what was going on that day. So if you'll look at verse 12 with me, we see that as she was continuing to pray before the Lord, Eli noticed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Hannah gives a respectful response to this rather dense priest, if you will, and it seems to momentarily sharpen his perspective. Initially supposing her to be intoxicated, he rebuked her only to learn that she was engaged in silent prayer before God. You you think a priest would know that. He then corrected himself and he pronounces upon her this priestly blessing, which in reality seems more to have been a pious wish than a prophetic word. He sends her on her way and so she now has renewed hope. She has renewed comfort and maybe even a measure of assurance. And Hannah goes back to Elkanah and she waits on the Lord. How will the Lord respond to her prayer? Waiting is always the hardest part, isn't it? Waiting on the Lord, maintaining steadfast trust in Him when the outcome seems so uncertain. And yet it is in knowing and clinging with steadfast hope to God's providence that we can press on, that we can press forward, even when the road ahead seems to be blocked. It takes that kind of trust for our countenance to be refreshed if we're to accept His will as good and perfect. But let's be clear. The Lord never gives a blank check in promising to bring offspring into childless homes. The lesson from this story is not that if you do what Hannah does, that God will allow you to conceive and bear a child. That's not not what the lesson of this story is all about. But in Hannah's case, he did that very thing, and he did it for a providential purpose. So following the feast and returning home 
to Ramah, we learn that Hannah was at long last able to conceive and give birth. So down in verses 19 through 23, we, we learn about this son that Hannah brings forth. Here's what the text says, verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. So Elkanah and, and Hannah, they go back home. They maintain their intimate union as, as husband and wife. And, and we're told here that the Lord remembered her. Now, never, of course, had the Lord forgotten her. The Lord always hears the prayers of his people. None go unnoticed. None go unheeded. And though we may not always be able to see it, God always responds in a manner in which the results are for our best and for his glory. For Hannah, that meant that she would conceive and give birth to a son whom she would name Samuel. Now, the name Samuel means asked or requested of God. And by virtue of God's providence and Hannah's vow, this child would grow to become both a prophet and a priest, Israel's last judge and the nation's first kingmaker. That's who this son was going to be. But all of that awaited fulfillment of Hannah's solemn promise, of which we read in the last five verses. Of chapter 1. So look at verse 24. And here we see the sacrifice of Hannah. We're told that when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. I'll say something about the word lent in a moment. So Elkanah had fully supported Hannah's oath to dedicate their son, Samuel, to the Lord. An extra-biblical source reveals that Jewish children were generally weaned until about the age of three years old. And so we can imagine three years have passed since Hannah gave birth to Samuel until this event begins to unfold. Samuel is taken back to Shiloh. He is left with Eli, the priest. Sadly, we later learn that it was not the most ideal environment for Samuel to be raised. And nevertheless, the favorable hand of God was mightily upon this young man. In verse 22, Hannah had vowed that Samuel appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. 
Now, just kind of focus on that for a moment. That is a lifetime commitment. Forever means for the rest of his life. You know, I've tried to imagine what it must have been like for Hannah to have given birth to this long-awaited son, having weaned him and raised him for three years, and then relinquishing him, literally handing him over to the Lord for a lifetime of service. I mean, think about that, moms. No longer was she able to witness all the special things that children do during their first three years. One can't help but think of Mary, who in a much more painful and sacrificial way, later on would release her own firstborn son, knowing that his death would bring redemption and reconciliation to God, to a sin-cursed and condemned world. You see, both for Mary and for Hannah, motherhood was a bittersweet experience. And, you know, we can take that comparison back even further, can't we? And we, we can trace what, what Hannah was doing in, in giving her son back to the Lord, to, to God himself. I mean, recalling those oft-recited words, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so don't you see that in the vow that, that Hannah was making, she was experiencing something of the heart of God? It is said twice in verse 28 that she lent her son to the Lord. I mean, that word literally means to give back or, or to dedicate. She wasn't relinquishing the, the privilege of, of motherhood, but she was giving Samuel over in an act of supreme surrender and sacrifice to God, the one who had given him to her in the first place. This chapter concludes with these words. And Samuel, he, worshiped the Lord there. Samuel was still a child in his formative years. He was still, he was still growing, and, and we're able to surmise that Hannah had probably been preparing him from the earliest days until the time she handed him over for this particular day, the day when he would be given over for a lifetime of service to the Lord. No doubt she had instilled within him in the midst of a dark religious culture, remember, it's the time of the judges, that God was faithful and true and worthy to be worshipped. So as we come to the end of chapter 1, if, if we just drew a line right there and we said, okay, let's bow our heads and pray, this would be a great story. It would be an inspiring story. It would be a heartwarming story. But there's so much more to see, and that's why we have to dip into chapter 2 for a few minutes. Because it's here that we give ear to Hannah's song. This godly woman never regretted the vow she made to the Lord. Lord, if you give me a child, then I'll give him back to you for a lifetime of service. Never do we read that Hannah said, oh, what did I do? I should have given that more thought. And never did she begrudge the Lord for having accepted her sacrifice. We say that in the content 
of the powerful words that we find in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. This is a song. This is a song. It's a hymn of praise. It was probably written sometime after Hannah had committed Samuel to the Lord. When she would have had time to reflect upon who God is and who her son was and how God was working out his providential plan. I want to just look at this briefly. We don't have time to go deeply into this, but I certainly want to read these first 10 verses. And and it seems to me that there are, we can break this down into three sections. In verse 1, for example, we see Hannah exulting in the Lord or, or rejoicing, if you will, in the Lord. It reads this way. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Those are inspired words. Uh, If they sound familiar to you and you're more familiar with the New Testament, then probably Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 springs to mind because when the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would be bearing the Christ child, we find similar words to this. In fact, many people believe that Mary's words were drawn from Hannah's song. Mary wrote, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Nearly identical to what Hannah is saying here. Both the songs of Mary and Hannah are rich in messianic character. Both point ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that that people sometimes believe that Mary borrowed these words from Hannah when she poured out her praise to God. So so we find Hannah right here in this first verse exalting in the Lord. But then in verses 2 through 8, we find Hannah extolling the Lord, praising him for his goodness, his perfect holiness, his providential control over all things. Look at these words with me. Beginning of verse 2. There is none... Remember, this is a mother who has experienced the providential hand of God. In a miraculous way. She says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. And it's at this point in these verses where Hannah's song and, and Mary's songs, they converge most brilliantly. There are so many contrasting statements that are found in verses 4 through 7 to, to, to signify the fact that the Lord can raise up and he can put down. He does that at his good pleasure. 
Both these women, Hannah and Mary, believed that they had been supernaturally touched by the hand of God, and they received a, a blessed and privileged calling from God. In spite of what naysayers and scoffers might say, Finally, in verses 9 and 10, we find Hannah expecting from the Lord. You see, these are not just words of praise. And, and I really want you to see this. These are also words of confident hope that the Lord will be faithful to his word and to his people. Do not doubt the Lord will honor his word. He will be faithful to his people. Verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Underline that word. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Underline that word too. Because these two verses actually provide the main point of Hannah's song. And a critical point it is. One that would have exceeded Hannah's ability to even comprehend what she was writing. They were recorded so that succeeding generations, people like us, would be able to see with greater clarity the unfolding plan of God in providing a savior, a king, an anointed one, not just for Israel, but for all people everywhere. Everyone who would repent of sin and call upon his name. Because you see, the reference to king in verse 10 previews not only the rest of 1 Samuel, but the rest of the Bible. Remember, Israel is still in the period of the judges. And without a king, unbeknownst to Hannah, her son Samuel would be God's choice to anoint the nation's first two kings. Samuel would first anoint Saul to be Israel's king. Saul became a pretty miserable king. God looked for a man after his own heart. That man was David. Who did he send to anoint David? Samuel. And what makes this even more significant it is, is it that because it was through David's line that ultimately the Savior King would come. Who is that Savior King? Jesus Christ, the one who would rule throughout eternity as God's anointed Messiah. King, anointed this is looking at Jesus. And so we find here the promise of God, one that filled Hannah with great expectation, not unlike Mary, that God was sending a deliverer to his people to restore them to himself. 
the call of Samuel to be prophet and judge of Israel proved to be a turning point in the history of the nation. This grace-led son of Hannah was the last of Israel's judges. The period of the judges was coming to an end. Samuel would be the one to transition into the monarchy. He would become the kingmaker of Israel and thus further prepare the way for the coming of the ultimate king, King Jesus. Verse 5 here suggests that Hannah bore other children. In time, the Lord's favor upon this praying mother would be confirmed above that of her rival. And I believe that's what that contrast is all about. Her godly character would be born from the passage of time and the faithful endurance of many days of trial. And to this very day, the same is true for all of God's people. He gives support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. 1 Chronicles 16, 9. So where does this take us? Well, we have a flawed and limited perspective. And it may not seem to be so, but Scripture repeatedly affirms to us that the opening and closing of the womb and the giving and the preventing and even taking of life are providential prerogatives of God. Hannah was unable to bear children. And so the inspired writer of 1 Samuel tells us very clearly in these words, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, he didn't do that to be punitive. God wasn't being mean to Hannah. Rather, he was exercising providence in a way that could not be immediately seen or understood. Hannah was looking through a glass darkly. We have much more revelation from God than Hannah had. She was looking through a glass darkly, but she realized that the Lord was the one who governs conception. Therefore, she pled with the giver and taker of life to give your servant a son. And in sovereign grace and in God's perfect timing, that's exactly what he did. He granted her request. Hannah was not exaggerating when she generalized from her experience the sweeping statement in verse 6. Look at that statement. The Lord kills and brings to life. Take that seriously. She was simply acknowledging as many others in the biblical narrative have that this is what it means for God to be God. The Lord gives life. The Lord takes life. That's what Job said. God's providence extends to life being held exclusively in his hands. And Hannah's prayer for a son and her praise, thanking God for her son, were mere reflections of God's providence. The Bible presents motherhood as a bequest from God. Children are a gift from the Lord. Remember? The fruit of the womb is his reward. Israelite women would often pray that they might be the mother of the Messiah. 
That was their, their great hope. That was, that was their, the, the great ambition. May I be the one who brings the Messiah into the world. That honor would wait several centuries for a young girl by the name of Mary. Hannah was brokenhearted over her childlessness. She felt forsaken of God. Her maternal instincts prompted agonizing prayer with a burning intent of giving the boy back to the Lord if he were to give her a son. To her, that would be the highest service of devotion and praise that a mother could possibly render. What is the best thing a mother can do to show honor and praise to God? Dedicate your children to the Lord. Hannah prayed that prayer, and her prayer was answered. She would go from brokenhearted bitterness to grace-blessed maternity. She would come to see that the greatest gift was not the son himself, but the ability to give that son back to the Lord. And in a way, she came to understand something about the heart of God, who a millennium later would hand over his own beloved son to a sin-cursed world in order to save those who were condemned by their sin and needed redemption. So as we draw to a conclusion these thoughts about Hannah this morning, I want to suggest just three takeaways for us. And I'll break this down into groups. First of all, for, for those of you who are mothers this morning, rejoice. Rejoice in your God-given role and fulfill your special calling as unto the Lord. It's he alone who is able to grant life enabling you to conceive and bear children. But, but I'm also aware that there are some among us this morning who have adopted children, welcomed children into your home through adoption. Maybe you, you haven't born children of your, of your own, but you've adopted children. You've brought children into your home. And, and for God's sake, we thank you for that. After all, giving birth is but the starting point of raising children. Children must be raised. Children must be taught to love the Lord by both word and example. Psalm 127 goes on to say that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. What do you do with an arrow? You aim it at a target. And that's what we're instructed to do. Mom, aim your children at a target. That, that target ought to be to please the Lord in all that he says, he or she says or does. And of course, faithful mothers must never cease to pray for their children. We never know what our children are going to grow to become. Hannah didn't know that Samuel would be the last of the judges, a prophet, a priest, and the kingmaker of Israel. Pray for your children. Pray that God would fulfill his plan in your child's life. So then there are others who are here this morning, ladies who are not mothers. You may never be a mother. Remember that as honorable a calling as motherhood is, it remains secondary to the primary calling that 
the Lord gives us all to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, and to every day savor and serve Jesus Christ as Lord. That's our primary calling. Matthew 6.33 tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's not a blanket promise that you'll bear children. It's rather God's reassuring word that he will be for you everything that you need all the time and in every way. Hannah's prayer and her praise were founded upon the providence of God. But finally, I can't let the men escape. Just a word to us men and boys about our responsibility to our wives, to our mothers, as well as our accountability to the Lord. We noted earlier that God's charge for us all was to show honor and respect to our parents. And scripture tells us it's the right thing to do. It's a command that is not revoked as we grow older. We're commanded to love our wives, men, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Furthermore, it's to us men to whom God has given the responsibility to raise the children, to train the children, to teach them the ways of God. It is only the rarest of instances where spiritual training should be abdicated and become the sole task of the mother. Let us be men, examples, although imperfect examples, of what our sons and daughters bring to mind when they hear about the Heavenly Father. So as we pay honor to our mothers today, we give thanks for our mothers, and rightfully so. Let us recognize with ever-increasing clarity that families have been ordained by God. If for no other reason than to create a visible image for us of the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And furthermore, Motherhood becomes a living illustration which inspires us to look with awe upon the one who calls us to a new birth as we turn from sin and self and bow humbly before him as Savior and Lord. And of course, we can do none of this apart from the grace of God that is made available to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, as Savior and Lord, let me encourage you on this special day to turn from your sin and confess him as your own. Let's pray together. Your goodness and grace to us, O Lord, are overwhelming, so undeserved. When we consider your holiness and our sinfulness, the distance between us could not be greater. And yet in mercy, you bridged that gap by means of the cross of Jesus, providing forgiveness and deliverance to all who would call upon your name. How can we not praise you? How can we not give you our all? Please help us on this day to walk in humility and with unwavering trust in your every promise and sovereign providence, knowing that at all times and in all things, you are constantly working for the good of those who are yours and for the glory of your great name. Be pleased in every circumstance to use us to bring honor to you 
by testifying of your steadfast love and pointing others to the way of salvation that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.